have Dan from the ED, and he will be presenting a journal call article titled Targeted Temperature Management at 33 degrees Celsius versus 36 degrees after cardiac arrest. Okay, as um, Dan, and it's kind of about therapeutic hypothermia, so a little bit of background information about the topic. Um, patients who survive out of hospital cardiac arrest but remain unconscious have an increased risk of developing neurological defects, deficits, so there's a few proposed mechanisms that how they think therapeutic hypothermia prevents this brain injury from occurring in some cases. Uh, one of them is reduction in cerebral metabolism. Another is it promotes cerebral vasoconstriction, which can reduce intracranial pressure. Uh, it inhibits the caspase cascade, which prevents neuronal injury from leading to apoptosis or programmed cell death, or it uh, suppresses the inflammation cascade. Uh, the current guidelines actually recommend a target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius for only patients that have shockable rhythms like V-fib, and this is based on the two studies. So there was two previous trials that kind of were the mainstay for this idea. Uh, the Bernard trial was the first one, and that was they did 33 degrees Celsius versus, I mean, normal, no therapeutic hypothermia, and it was statistically beneficial for helping patients to prevent brain injury, but only for ventricular fibrillation MIs. And then the second trial was the, they had called the HACA, or the Hypothermia After Cardiac Arrest Study Group. And they also found the same thing, that 33 degrees Celsius was statistically beneficial, neurological outcomes and death. Uh, both of these were published in 2002, and there really wasn't much else after that until this study kind of came out. So this study, why this study? It, um, it addresses what is the best temperature, so no other study has addressed that that I could find. It was usually either use it or don't use it, and 33 degrees was kind of used because animal studies showed that it was beneficial. Um, this study also, at the end there, kind of looks at the possibility of maybe just pre preventing fever in these patients is the benefit and not necessarily the going as low as 33 degrees Celsius. Uh, there's just the title and citation. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine, published 2013, November. Um, the funding sources, so it was uh, independent research grants, from both nonprofit organizations and governmental agencies, so there was no commercial funding or bias, and that was all in the supplemental material. I uh, just wrote the null hypothesis, so it was 33 degrees Celsius is not more effective or safer than 36 degrees Celsius as a target temperature. Uh, the trial was designed as a multi-center randomized clinical trial, and you were either randomized to 33 degrees or 36 degrees group. Uh, they did the best they could with blinding. Everyone was blinded except the people actually taking care of the patients. Obviously, they have to know what temperature to keep them at when they're doing that. And then it was um, 36 ICUs in both Europe and Australia. Uh, the objective was, as I stated, just compare two target temperatures and therapeutic hypothermia for both efficacy and safety. Uh, they initially had 950 patients were randomized and enrolled in the trial and ended with 939 were included in the primary analysis. And I'll get to that in a little bit, why they lost a few patients. And that was based on the inclusion criteria below. So the inclusion exclusion criteria also found in the supplemental material. They kind of mentioned it briefly in the article, but it really got the real list in the supplemental material. Um, so inclusion criteria were age greater than or equal to 18 years of age. Um, yeah, hospital cardiac arrest had to be a presumed cardiac cause, and that was at the judgment of the physicians for the most part. Uh, they had to have sustained return of spontaneous circulation, and that was, I defined that below with the asterisk, it's just when chest compressions had not been required 
for 20 consecutive minutes and signs of circulation persisted. Uh, the patient had to be unconscious, so have a Glasgow coma scale score of less than 8 after the return of spontaneous circulation. Uh, so a uh, little thing there, just not able to follow verbal commands. And then the exclusion criteria was kind of a long list, but so obvious or suspected pregnancy, they didn't want to affect the baby. Um, any bleeding disorder or intracranial bleeding or stroke, things like that, because cooling the body temperature they found kind of inhibits platelet aggregation, so they didn't want to mess with that. Um, if the cardiac arrest was unwitnessed and the initial rhythm was asystole, they excluded them. Uh, obviously, the patient had DNR or known disease, making 180-day survival unlikely. Um, if they had the pre-arrest, the CPC score of 3 or 4, so if they already had poor neurological function. Uh, greater than 4 hours from return of spontaneous circulation to screening. If their blood pressure was low, they needed pressors or the intraaortic balloon pump. And then if their temperature was already too low, below 30 degrees Celsius. So, as I mentioned, the two intervention groups were just the two different target temperatures, 33 and 36. Then they did an intervention period. So, 36 hours, starting at the time of randomization, they immediately tried to cool you to your target temperature. And then they were reached as quickly as possible, and they used either ice-cold fluids, ice packs, or intravascular um, measures. So, they only used, I think it was like 25% of patients needed the intravascular measures, usually just ice packs, cool blankets. And then they monitor temperature, either... Um, orally, rectally, or whatever method was easiest for them. Uh, after 28 hours, then they gradually rewarmed you at 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour up to 37 degrees Celsius. And I'd just like to point out, it's a little different than the St. Peter's one is 0.25 degrees Celsius. It's a little more, um, a little more quick, but kind of similar. And then the temperature management was done up to 72 hours at the discretion of the site. So with oral medications, they still tried to keep prevent a fever. That was kind of their own little theory. So the primary endpoint was just all-cause mortality through the end of the trial. And then the secondary endpoints were a composite of neurological function and death at 180 days. Okay, then for the statistical analysis, they did quite a bit. So they used the modified intention to treat, and that was just groups were determined by randomization, and they excluded either those withdrawing consent those not fulfilling inclusion criteria and those who never received the intervention. And I said that was beneficial, it factors out non-compliance or missing data. And there was 14 patients that weren't included for various acceptable reasons, either they passed away or they couldn't get consent from the family to include them. Uh, the Wil Wilcoxon signed rank test is just like the pair T test, but considers direction and size of observed differences. Uh, they used the Kaplan-Meier survival curve, which is fairly common when you're dealing with death as a primary endpoint. Uh, standard log rank tests with nominally two-sided p-values, and then um, a Cochrane-Armitage test. So I kind of looked it up, and that was used to detect trends, and it has higher power to detect a suspected trend, but you lose the ability to detect an unsuspected trend, but it appeared to work fine. Uh, so the results, uh, the enrollment, as I mentioned, 950 patients were enrolled, 936 were included in the modified intention to treat or the per-protocol population. Uh, they determined that 900 patients would provide a 90% power to detect a 20% reduction in the hazard ratio for death, and that was with a two-sided alpha of 0.05, so they did have enough patients for what they determined to be power. Uh, the baseline characteristics are in Table 1 in the article, and that's on page 2200, if anybody to look at those. Um, they did statistical testing, and they were in, all the, in both groups, all the values were not statistically different. 
Uh, there's a few things I wanted to point out, though, about that I thought were kind of limitations. Well, I'll talk about them. The bystander witness cardiac arrest was 90% for both groups. So they weren't different, but I thought realistically that may not represent a true population. I don't think, at least in this area, 90% of cardiac arrests are witnessed. And then it even said bystander performed CPR was almost a quarter, or three quarters, 75% for both groups, which might be a little high as well. Um, also, I just wanted to note that if cardiac arrest was not witnessed, then the patients, their time to cardiac arrest that the study used was just the time of the 911 call, so they don't actually know how long they've been out. Uh, for monitoring, the surviving patients were monitored for seven days in the ICU, and only for those seven days were the adverse effects like recorded for the data. Um, then patients were, if they were okay, they were sent home and followed for 180 days after the end last enrolled patient. And then the primary outcome information was obtained either through registries, national hospital, contacting the patients, relatives, or their general practitioner. And then similarly, the final neurological evaluations were done, either had them come in for a hospital visit, visit the patient's home, or contact patients, relatives, or general practitioners. Um, I thought that the primary outcome was done well. They followed up and monitored with everybody, but they said the secondary outcome, they only had to verify at least 20% of the patients and kind of extrapolated from that, which I thought was kind of a weakness, too. Then uh, the primary outcome data, Table 2 has both primary and secondary outcome data. Excuse me. That's on page 2202. And that just showed they did a hazard ratio, and there was no statistical difference between the two groups with a hazard ratio of 1.06 and a confidence interval of 0.89 to 1.28, and the p-value was 0.51. And then secondary outcome, none of them had statistical differences either. P-value is much higher than 0.05. As far as clinical events go, they did have a table in um, the supplementary material. Again, unfortunately, it was S12, if everybody actually looked at it. But. So that showed adverse events recorded in the trial. And almost all the adverse events were not statistically different, but it seemed to be and they had mentioned trending towards the 33-degree Celsius group being worse. And there was one, hypokalemia, was actually statistically significantly lower in the 36-degree Celsius group with a p-value of 0.018. So statistically speaking, it's not very different, but overall the p-value for the two was 0.086 in favor of the 36-degree Celsius group. So clinically speaking, that may be something to note. Uh, so the author's conclusions, so they, had, they said that this provided no support that the targeting of a body temperature of 33 degrees Celsius is beneficial over targeting 36 degrees Celsius for unconscious patients admitted to the hospital after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And they kind of, like I mentioned before, they kind of mentioned a clinically relevant benefit to controlling the body temperature at 36 instead of allowing fever to develop in patients, and maybe even a benefit using 36 versus 33. And I kind of had my own uh, critique of the article. So I thought one thing that I noticed different was that all types of heart failures were included, not just shockable rhythms, which I thought was positive in the sense that it can be generalized to a larger population, but it kind of makes it difficult to compare to the other trials. And they had mentioned they didn't use a control group because you could use the control group from the previous trials, but that's not entirely true. They're kind of different groups of patients. Um, this trial also kept fever prevention measures going for three days after the cardiac arrest, which is different than this, the other two trials that they were saying you could compare to. Another limitation I found, there was no data at all for the neuromuscular blocking agents they used. So they required them to prevent shivering, but they 
did not have to do dosing or what they used at all in the study anywhere. No one had to write it down. Um, as I mentioned, the staff members were aware of the target temperatures, but that's unavoidable. I thought they did a good job correcting for that. And one other thing they had mentioned was ethical approval in one country required a legal surrogate to consent to the process, and they lost a lot of patients that way, available patients. Um, so how does this apply to St. Peter's and the real world? I said it may be beneficial to look further into therapeutic hyperthermia trials as they start to occur. I assume more people are going to look into this now that this study came out. And I said logically preventing a fever should help prevent neurological damages um, through the mechanisms I said before. And then I did want to note again that the baseline characteristics, as we discussed, really probably don't apply to this area. It's maybe in other countries, more people perform CPR, I don't know, but... Uh, but uh, so based on the study, I said it may be safe to use the 36-degree target, maybe even for patients that don't fit the St. Peter's protocol that they have set up here. Does anybody have any questions? I think the explanation probably for um, uh, for the um, thing that you were mentioning about the um, all types of people being included, not just shockable rhythms goes into they were letting the physicians determine the uh, whether it was a primary cardiac event. So the way this usually works out is, you know, someone comes into the ED and, car- and you know, they're, they're now stable and cardiology is consulted and they, and they say, well, the initial rhythm was PEA, but the family member saw them clutch their chest and they have a history of diabetes and heart disease. So I bet you it was V-fib before it turned into PEA and the EMS folks got there. So that, so I actually like that as the way they included it because that does match how um, things are usually discussed on, on patients if someone's uh, thinking about it. Did they um, remark on how many patients shivered? No, they, they said every patient had to use um, neuromuscular blockade to prevent shivering. So I guess they were implying that none did, but they didn't mention 30% did. 30%? Oh, in each group? Yeah, they okay. were the same. I would have predicted that more people in the 36 degree would have shivered. Well, they mentioned that yeah. they expected more people to shiver in the 36 degree group was the problem. But maybe that's why they were biased and made sure everyone got... I thought it was interesting that the initial temperature on recorded when they got to the hospital was 35 degrees C. So technically in the 36 degrees C group, they were actually warming the patient rather than cooling them um, compared to the 33 degrees C group where they actually did cool by two degrees. And I think towards the end of this trial, I could even, I think they decided that 36 degrees Celsius was more like just preventing fever as opposed to cooling, so. Those fever prevention measures that you mentioned, were they, did they just include Tylenol, or did it also include more ice packs, more surface cooling, more intravascular cooling past the initial, uh, you know, out to 72 hours? The way they made it sound, it was only like Tylenol oral measures, but they never actually stated that I could find what they had used. I don't think of these patients as having fever. 
I mean, outside of other measures, like when I think about cardiac arrest, I'm not thinking about hyperthermia yeah. <laughs> at all. So the fact that we're doing fever reduction, it might probably isn't going to occur on day one, but it can right. throughout their stay. Yeah, I guess it's the body's natural reaction to injury, but yeah. they made it sound like it happened quite often. But fever. I mean, I think about it from the standpoint that it's Mm-hmm. It is. But I mean, I think about all of the CVIC patients that you see in the CCU, and there's some that have fever, but it's like I think about 950 patients, and I go, wow, that's not really the groups that I've witnessed. So it's just an interesting approach in terms of that prevention. The other comment I have is I agree with you. I think it's pretty amazing that they got 90% witness cardiac arrest yeah. in the study. Um, and I don't know if they're any better. Or, I mean, that's a pretty astounding. Cardiac arrest studies are hard to do, especially when you're coming from the community and in. So how they got that to happen yeah, I'm is, not sure. is really Maybe Australia is better at watching each other. I think that all goes to that one uh, criteria of inclusion has to be presumed cardiac cause. I think that's right. what I'm saying, too. Think about that. <laughs> like, we'll see when you find someone down, but you, you know, you see anything else to go along with that. Let alone start CPR. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing, too. I don't think three quarters of America would do CPR on the person they saw. Maybe I'm wrong, but. <laughs> bothers me when we start talking about trends to this or trends to that, um, especially when we start to make assumptions in large trials like this, because the statistics really are pretty black and white. I mean, it's either it's relevant or it's not, and I understand when it approaches statistical significance, but so they still didn't have enough in terms of adverse events between oh. each group, which is, and so I'm not necessarily fault. It's something that's commonly said. I mean, journals say it all the time, but it's really not a trend, and so either the population has to be big, which to me this is a pretty big population, and especially all the power analysis that you mentioned and that they they did, um, and they still didn't find the difference. Right. But although it wasn't hard necessarily to find the difference, the adverse right. effects. They didn't mention the adverse effects. So. so I know that you're all approaching like the end of your um, educational careers in pharmacy, but that's just something always to keep in mind when you're reading journals and reading studies is. Statistical trends, which are not trends, are not always a safe bet to make um, s- solid conclusions or um, decisions of it. And it's just something to remind and refresh people's memories um, about that. It's just my, it's my pet peeve. Mm-hmm. I usually see it when the authors have a particular right. bias. Well, mm-hmm. oh, like I said, I think towards the end there, they kind of want the 36 to be the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So their trial wasn't... And, and, you know, neuromuscular blockers can cause hypokalemia, mm-hmm. right? right? So did that counteract the hypokalemia? You know, if they made no comment. So what if more people in the 36-degree group require neuromuscular blockers? Right. And so their potassium is <laughs> higher on average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, of course, they had less hypokalemia. So, I mean, there's a ex- possible explanation for it, so it's meaningless to talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. 
that's a solid the trend. <laughs> I think the other thing, too, I think when this first came out, I heard, um, some people were talking about, well, look, did you hear about that study that came out that showed there's no benefit to uh, hypothermia? Um, but it, but it's important to look at the methods because the same amount of pa- patients got ice packs, the same amount of patients got intravascular cooling devices, surface cooling. Everyone got therapeutic hypothermia. It's just the target. Right, the target temperature. Yeah, I mean, I did read, like, I was trying to read, like, blogs and stuff, and physicians were talking about possibly switching their practices based on this, but there are some weaknesses to the study, so. The ethical dilemma also um, intrigued me, because we, li- I mean, it was a big deal when where I was before when we started the whole hypothermia protocol, and we did rule out a lot of people because people weren't comfortable giving consent. So it's certainly a dilemma when you when you think about going through an IRB study and trying to get something approved for many countries that they needed approval in some places and not in others, um, especially because there has not been any clear cut, you know, the hypothermia and where that needs to go. So it just makes me wonder how they get through pieces. And there's even places, I don't know, do we have to give consent before they cool them here? I don't think there's a consent process. I don't remember that being in the protocol. We tried to open up. Our initial protocol was very restricted. We, we tried to open up the criteria, and we made up narrow UPenn's criteria, which are essentially anybody a doctor wants to do it on, you can do it on. Um, but, but then it's up to the cardiologist to go, oh, I bet it was weakened and then turned into PEA, and so let's right. do it for this patient. Um, or, or to say, no, we're not going to do it. They were down for four hours, and... Yeah, I have the protocol here. It doesn't say anything about needing consent, so it's pretty much up to the cardiologist. I mean, you always need consent to sign up for the study, but to get additional consent. Um, that was just a huge deal where I was. And it was the medical staff that made, you know, a huge deal, and, like, they felt pretty differently about how the initial study, like, the first two studies came out that created this huge debate. It's hard to forget debates. <laughs> when, when it was first implemented here, there was a cardiologist that was really passionate about it. He got the protocol started, and then um, uh, I went to cardiology brand rounds, and, and his colleagues were kind of poking fun at him. Yeah. Like, none of this matters. These people are lost. Right. They, uh, they were lost when, when they had the heart attack before they came to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Why are we expending all these resources on people that aren't going to come back? Yep. So should it start in the ED? Well, it, it does say in the protocol, if there's no ICU bed within, I think, 30 minutes, then they have to start it in the ED, but it shouldn't be. It should be in the ICU, ICU. ideally. So what about, like, we're, we have the luxury of having an ICU here, but if you think about some places that have maybe critical access hospitals or smaller, think of in the Northern Adirondacks, and they need to get to a hospital, would you start it before you transport I feel like that'd be kind of tough to do, but because then if you start it before you transport, then you, as you're bringing them into the hospital, their temperature might go up again, and yeah. you're really hard to control. What does it mean to like the patients in an ICU? What's the defining factor? What they would say for for why they go for, to this? No, for now, all of a sudden, the patient is in, is in an ICU or is receiving ICU level of care. 
how, how do you, what, what's the difference between where they were and now they're in the ICU? How would you define that? What's different about they went from the ED and now they're in the ICU? As far as well, the care they're giving. Well, I mean, there's certainly more doctors and more, I think the nursing ratio is much higher. It's like one to, one nurse every two patients versus like the ED is like one versus 10 or 12 that's it. Yeah, so if you're, so wherever you are, if you have a critically care, critical care trained nurse that can attend just to that patient or to that patient and one other, you're in an ICU. Um, but if you can't, if that nurse also has seven other ankle sprains or whatever the, uh, fractures that they're also dealing with, now you're not in an ICU. So um, it just it really depends. I mean, there's more doctors in the ED than there yeah. are in, in an ICU. But it, so it really depends on you know the what level of nursing support do you have for that right. patient as far as their knowledge and their ability to monitor all these interventions you want. And they did mention that too, that a critical care nurse, if you're going to start it in the ED, has to be down there and just on that patient, like you said. So. Yeah, and there's some emergency departments that have like an ICU part of their emergency department. Yeah. So you can start ICU level care while they're in the emergency mm-hmm. department before they move upstairs. Yeah, you know, um, have you listened to the Crit um, podcast at all? Yeah, I did for this article. So, so um, Scott Weinberg is a ER intensivist or ED uh, intensivist. So he has his own four-bed ICU in, um, I forget which New York City hospital he's in, um, but uh, exactly what, uh, what Richard said, they do have ICU level of care right now. But it's not as much that it's the physician there, it's the, it's it's the, nurse, it's the nurse and Because yeah. cooling doesn't always go... Well, this is the way I would say it. It doesn't always go smoothly. If you shiver and you don't address it immediately, your your temperature's going to go up. You're going to have all of the stuff that you're trying to prevent with inflammation and all these things are going to increase if you have untreated shiver. It's actually more like a one-on-one ratio, I think, than it is a two-to-one. And I don't know how common this actually is at St. Peter's. I mean, I didn't see anybody in my six weeks here going. It's more common than it has been, but I... It's like an everyday right. event for us. Uh, numbers, I would have to check. I would just be making it up if I didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you have to be in the right place at the right time in order for, compared to other interventions that you have for cardiac arrest, you know, like you've got AEDs almost, yeah. almost everywhere. I mean, they're more ubiquitous, but this, you've got, you really do have to be in the right place at the right time in order to maximize on it. Yeah, maybe it works because it was witnessed and someone did CPR, and then they brought them right. there. And yeah, that ninety percent still speaks. To yeah. Me. Well, and I looked at the other trials too, and even those, those rates were much higher because again, they were in Europe and Australia. So. Niche. <laughs> Do you think that benefited the the thirty six degree in this study? The fact that they did it in Europe and Australia, where they have these practices in place. I don't know if it benefited. 36 more than the 33. I mean, I guess the outcomes were the same for both, so it'd probably be interesting if they could do, like, nothing versus 36 versus 33, but in the ethical debate, well, 33 is the mainstay of care, so can you really do that, but... Yeah. Do you know what anybody, but um, you said you looked at them, do you know what the numbers needed to treat were in the old studies? Six. So, yeah, my understanding was that the data was, you know, very compelling as to why you should be, you know, cooling. Um, so 
just to play a bit of devil's advocate for our discussion, um, I appreciate that maybe this data is not pristine or flawless, but there is some data to say that maybe 33 is not the best target and we're wasting all these resources. So um, maybe not a change of shift in clinical practice based upon the study alone, but absolutely further studies because there's only one or two studies that have really compelling data, but at least one study to say, hmm, maybe not so compelling, so just comment. I don't know, I just feel like logically, the colder you go, the risk to other organs normally, I feel like the risk to other organ damage, so. Absolutely, that too. Plus Sepsis and coagulopathy, so I think. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're getting it paralytic. Mm-hmm. And your altering all the metabolism. Did you look at the other study that was recently published in JAMA? That's, that was on hypothermia. I just saw the, the title pop up when I was looking at stuff, but I didn't actually read it. Well, it was, I think we actually did that during article before. Was that the one like, before getting to the hospital or something? Yeah. Yeah.